Services contractors are wondering just what their options are now that the Biden administration has lost an appeal of a federal court ruling. The ruling upheld an injunction against contractor vaccine mandates, but the same three-judge panel also said the injunction should not be national. Now companies are wondering whether every contracting officer will have read the confusingly written advice from the White House. We get more now from the president and CEO of the Professional Services Council, David Berteau. And David, this one really is a head-scratcher. What is your, what is the council's take on what happened? Well, Tom, we go back to ground zero here, and that was the executive order 14042 that uh, was issued last year that required federal contractors to get vaccines. There was a lot of procedure around that. Um, the implementation of that had been stretched out for some time and ultimately was enjoined not only by the Southern District Court of Georgia, but by a host of other court cases that have injunctions that are limited in their scope. The big injunction, though, was nationwide, as you point out. And a couple of Fridays ago, the 11th Circuit Court issued an opinion that says it shouldn't have been nationwide. It should have only applied to the seven states that were in that case and the one trade association that was in that case. Now, Application in this case is a bit confusing. You know, how do you limit contracts to a state? Well, that's you know that has to be sorted out a, a lot. But more importantly, is the fact that the federal acquisition regulation, the FAR clause that judge that uh, rules on this, um, taps back into not its own language, but language on a website for the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force. It's pretty rare that a acquisition regulation doesn't include all the, all that you need in its own words right but in this case it goes back to a website that is unsigned um, and gets updated regularly but uh, but not in ways that are predictable or, or put uh, uh, sure discerned by others right I guess and most so, people probably don't remember there is a safer federal workforce task force exactly uh, especially if you have to try to say it five times fast but uh, um, but most importantly, um, there are plenty of contracts where the clause is in that contract now, but not enforceable. Now, the workforce put out, uh, the task force that is, put out uh, new guidance uh, that said it should not be enforced unless agencies tell you otherwise. And uh, now, as far as we know, no agency has told anyone otherwise. So we're worried about two things here. We're really worried about three things, I guess. One is the extent and ultimate resolution of the various injunctions. I think there are now 24 of the 50 states have some form of injunction against this task force order. There's a second concern, which is uh, guidance to contracting officers has not been issued. The, the, work, the task force guidance is on their website. But as far as we know, no agency has sent out notice to contracting officers, please consult the website and do what it says, which is don't enforce the, the rule. We have asked our members whether or not they have had any inquiries from contracting officers, because, of course, not every contracting officer gets up every morning and looks at the task force website. And so we're worried that to be a contracting officer say, hey, I read in the newspaper about the injunction being lifted. They may not have read the whole story. They certainly probably didn't read the 61 page ruling. And now they might try to enforce that uh, that rule. There's a third complication, though, which is there's a different set of rules governing access to federal facilities which is not governed by either the task force or the executive order or the court rulings. And this comes into play. And oftentimes the guards at the gate are a little confused in terms of which rule they're enforcing and with whom. Right. I mean, the whole point of a vaccine mandate, I would think, is for people from contractors that are going to a federal agency. Otherwise, who cares if they're not 
ever near you. Uh, well, there is an issue there, although that's unclear from the, the guidance whether you can exempt people just by letting them stay home, right? They've still got to be covered. But the, the balance point that we've all sought here from the beginning is you want a healthy workforce. You want to be able to protect your workers. And, you know, to the extent vaccines are a part of that uh, regimen, then that's what you want to support. But you also, as a company, you have to have the workforce necessary in order to be able to perform the tasks that you're contracted for. And to bid and win the next contract, that's a, that's your obligation. That's a contractual obligation you have. So balancing that is still the number one priority for PSC and our members. All right. So the bottom line is there's still some clarification needed from the White House. And if that particular 11th court said we can only we feel that we should only have our ruling upholding the injunction for the seven states that we're concerned with, it sounds like maybe the Supreme Court would have to rule nationwide. It may be that it eventually gets to that point. Um, We haven't seen it in writing except from reporters, but apparently a spokesperson for OMB has said that the Justice Department is reviewing the ruling and until they have completed their review, And I think they have 45 days after the issuance of the ruling in order to uh, make a motion back to the court. And then seven days after that, before the court has to do anything. So it could be a couple of months here before we see any of this resolved. So in the meantime, contractors that have employees on site should just check locally with what is expected of them and go ahead and do that. Well, certainly from the facility access point of view, it is governed by local conditions. And, uh, and, you know, CDC made this more complicated by it's not just the caseload, but it's a couple of hospitalization Uh, ratios as well. And I don't know what algorithm they use to determine low, medium, or high. I would note that I checked uh, this morning and their website hasn't been updated since August 11th. Um, I would hope they would update that. But that's what governs uh, whether or not you have to have a vaccine when you go into a building. Well, maybe we need a good flu season to kind of drown it all out. We're speaking with David Berteau, president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. And then there's the ongoing issue of inflation and whether federal contracts can help out contractors facing inflation as we approach a continuing resolution, which does not mitigate in favor of spending more on existing contracts. So what is new on the inflation front? You raised three great points. There are two data points last week, Tom. One is the jobs report that came out last Friday uh, indicated continued strength in the job market, not quite as strong as it was in July, but over 300,000 net new jobs created. And we also saw uh, in, in a continuing trend that has been around for two years now of got roughly 10% year over year payroll growth, 5% year over year job growth. The difference, of course, is the 5% wage increase that we've seen across the board. And this has penetrated government contractors even to a greater extent than nationwide because the competition for workforce is so great in the government contracting community and the costs are much higher. That's not going down anytime soon, even though we've seen an increase in the labor force as well. So it used to be there were like two jobs open for every one person pursuing a job. Now it's gotten down to where it's about 1.8 jobs open for every person pursuing the job. That's still a seller's market, right? And we don't see that going away anytime soon. The second thing is that the president announced that he would be seeking a 4.6% pay raise for federal civilians in the FY23 budget. Why? Because their cost of living has gone up so much. Well, so have the workers for the contractors by an equivalent amount. So what we're arguing is that that should be accommodated in the FY23 appropriations. But we're not going to get an appropriations. We're going to start the year under a continuing resolution, which technically is an appropriation, but it's only a bridge, right? And so PSC and our fellow associations have been arguing that the CR needs to take this into account. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit uh, why this is different than previous years. Yeah, the question is, how can the CR take that into account? 
right? So for almost two decades now, inflation has been so low that a CR that started with last year's appropriation level didn't have to take inflation into account because there was almost no inflation. But if you go back into the past when we did have inflation, continuing resolutions were still present. Uh, you know, they've been with us for most of the time since we passed the Budget Reform Act of 1974, which was supposed to get rid of them, but, uh, but it didn't. And, and what <laughs> we did in those days is we would not enact a CR at the previous year's level. We would enact a CR at the lower level of the bills that had already been marked up. So in this case, FY23, the lowest markup is from the House Appropriations Committee, the subcommittees marked up to the president's budget level, not the FY22 level. So one of the things that we're asking Congress to do is if you have to enact a CR, we'd rather you have a full year appropriation, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen by September 30th. So if you have to have a CR, mark it up to the lower level of the already marked up bills. That would incorporate about four and a half percent additional funding, which would go a long way towards covering the cost of inflation. So this is a matter really then of the lobby people more than the business development people at this point. At this point, that's what we're working on is is, is we are lobbying uh, Congress to do that. There's a second element of this, though, which is the agencies themselves could issue guidance that would open the door to uh, request for equitable adjustment in existing contracts subject to available funding. If you have the money in your program, let the company submit you know, you want the evidence, you want the data, you want the indications of where that cost has actually gone up. You just don't want a, an assertion. You want documentation. That's what a re, REA, a request for lack of adjustment, would require. But many agencies, including the Defense Department, have discouraged rather than encouraged this, even if funding's available. We'd like to see that change. From your lips to Congress's ears, I guess. David Berto is president and CEO of the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. Look forward to the next time. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. 
So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My, my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation. But it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required and that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, 
one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those you know, sort of blue sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say like a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so while sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate 
And then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.